Welcome to Trashy Divorces. Welcome to Trashy Divorces. Stacey, we're, we're groundbreaking this week. I mean... We are sportsing this week. We've never sports before. We are not sporty, as it were. Well, we got we, very we could, inspired. We could stand to be sportier. On our couch, watching the win of the Women's World Cup of our Indeed. fantastic U.S. team. Indeed. So we felt a little, again, sportsy from our sportsy. couch with mimosas. That why not endeavor for today's up? So the finals of Wimbledon. Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead and bring you to a tennis's trashiest divorces. It's true, and it it almost spans generations. I've got uh, John McEnroe, who was married to actress Tatum O'Neill back in the eighties to early nineties. Sure thing. That's a it's a story full of tragedy. Boy, is it it, it is a it's a trash can spectacular it is a trash can spectacular you have a a sweeter one i with happy endings which is great like the story is certainly tragic and at the end kind of it i'm gonna leave you happy y'all i promise it's it's definitely got a happy ending to it before we start the episode today let's go ahead and uh talk about what happened on patreon this week totally amazing yeah lots of stuff in the magic mirror, sure. we're going to serve and volley oh, let's serve through and volley. our new patron. Stacey, you want to start us out? I will start us out. Thank you, Melissa Francis, Lauren A., Susan, Kimberly B., Claire, Kit H., Lauren P., Susie, Anna K., Carissa K., Justin T., Rita C., Shay F., Chelsea H., Brittany P., Christina B., Angie S., Brittany M., Sue Ann E, Amy C, Abigail S, Rebe, and last but not least in our magic mirror today, Margot D and Margot P from one of our favorite podcasts, Book Versus Movie. Thank you. To thank join you. us over on Patreon mm-hmm. this week. What happened on Patreon this week? Ooh. Oh, so much. You had some Wendy Dang International Dang. Woman of Mystery Stories. She really is. There is so much. Anyway, yeah. So we've got some further, some further trash, some further trash candy about the ex-wife, the third ex-wife of Rupert Murdoch. And ironically enough, I picked up a little bit of Scientology tea yeah, this you week. Did. Placido Domingo Jr.'s ex-wife, Sam, has now left Scientology and had a lot to say. A lot to say. About Tom Cruise and Kirstie Alley. And so that was just low-hanging Jada fruit. Jada Pinkett yeah. Smith. Picked that up and told that story. And I specifically remember at the end, I am never talking about Tom Cruise again. And then today. I am done with him. Full smackdown. God, I hate that sanctimonious prick. <laughs> Anyway, what else anyway. happened this week on Patreon? Oh, Fun, Fun Done, Done came back. Mm-hmm. Fune Wadune. Where I went through the illicit and scandalous affair of billionaire Alfred Bloomingdale and his mistress, story. Vicky Morgan. That was a great story. Thank you. It was a really good story. So be sure to check us out there if you just can't get enough trashy divorces. We have all kinds of fun surprises coming for you next week over on the Patreon as well. And one last thing before we start the show. We have a live show coming up in Atlanta. We do. On August 25th at a venue called Vinkman's. And there are still some tickets available. We are joined by Erica Kelly of Southern Fried True Crime. Yeah, there are just a few tickets left. So now is definitely the time to get those to see 
your favorite Atlanta podcasters, Alicia and Stacy, on stage with Erica Kelly, one of our favorite podcasters. Yeah, we've got a link to the venue and ticket purchasing at trashydivorces.com. Just look at the menu bar and you can go get your tickets right there. there. Yep. Get them get them while they're hot. Yeah. Get them while they last. Get them while they last. Yeah. That's the truth. Yeah. All right. You ready to grand slam this one? Let's smack it down. Go, go, go. <laughs> go, go, go. Hey, Stacy. Hey, Alicia. What are you serving up this week? Man, uh, it's uh, it's a love match. Oh, look at you. <laughs> it's uh, the trashy marriage and divorce of actress Tatum O'Neill and tennis legend John McEnroe. This is a good one. It is a good, it's a sad one. It's a sad one. Um, and I feel like there is no good way to even talk about this pair without walking back a bit to the story of Tatum's parents. So we're going to start there. Uh, with a young Ryan O'Neill actor. You may know him from Bones most recently. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And all of his trash bagginess behavior oh. over the last. Oh, my God. Tell me. God, this, uh. I didn't know. And now I know. And I almost wish I didn't know. <laughs> you were better before you knew. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, young Ryan O'Neill, who would go on to earn enormous fame as the star of TV's Peyton Place and the film Love Story was born in 1941 in Los Angeles. He studied boxing before he got into acting. So he's a tough guy. Like, sure. Yeah, he's brawny. So this happened in Germany. His family had relocated to Munich because his father was working on a television series there called Citizen Soldier. And so not military child Ryan is going to the Munich American High School, which is where all the GIs send their kids. Okay. So he's probably... Army kids are there. It's a fraternity, right? Have like their, military a, brats are. And he was sort not. Of family. He was not part of that. Oh, really? So he was really having trouble in school, apparently. And his mom was like, "You know what? We need to direct your particular weirdness." So to keep him out of trouble, his mom finagled him a job as an extra and a stuntman on a show called Tales of the Vikings. He was bitten by the acting bug. And it begins. And it begins. So back in L.A., he's working as an actor, and he marries Joanna Moore in 1963 when he is 21 because she is pregnant. (laughs) Um, He actually said, I actually saw a quote from Ryan O'Neill that said, back then all you had to do was shake hands with a girl to get her pregnant. Like, no. Sure, dude. (laughs) No. We all believe that. That is not. Actually, that's not how that works. They had two children. Before the marriage ended in 1966, and yeah, Tatum was the reason they got married. She was born November 5th, 1963. I believe Kennedy was killed not long after, and Doctor Who premiered that same month. Oh, wow. There you go. From Vanity Fair in 2009, this was, we'll link to this article in show notes. It was really, really good. It was actually about the final days of Farrah Fawcett, who was Ryan O'Neill's romantic partner for three decades. Mm Mm-hmm. Vanity Fair says, O'Neill spent only three years married to his first wife, actress Joanna Cook Moore. She was nuts, he says. Oh, really? You're a fine This guy's a dirtbag. They had two children, Tatum and Griffin, before separating in 66. But Moore eventually lost custody of their children to O'Neill as a result of chronic alcohol and drug abuse. And she was arrested for drunk driving multiple times. She died of lung cancer in 97. Oh, wow. Still from Vanity Fair. 
When Ryan's children were still young, the family dynamic was further complicated by Tatum's unexpected stardom. At the age of 10, she earned an Oscar for her performance opposite Ryan in the movie Paper Moon, becoming the youngest actor ever to win a competitive Academy Award. Her father blames this achievement for causing jealousy and resentment within the family. Everybody hated everybody because of that Academy Award, he says. You put your daughter in the movie. She was your co-star. What? You dickbag. (laughs) (laughs) What the? uh... Good stuff, right? Okay, let's also include that Ryan O'Neill had an ongoing fondness for drugs and alcohol, as well as a hell of a temper. In 1967, he remarried. And son Patrick was born with uh, actor Lee Taylor Young. And they remain friends okay. uh, to this day. So so that's nice. She says nice things about him. That marriage ended in 73, the same year that Paper Moon came out. That 10-year-old Tatum won her Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress. And, a and golden, ruined the family. And a Golden Globe for New Star of the Year. And everybody started hating everybody. What is it? Tolstoy said, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. That is the truth. <laughs> this family. Um, Tatum O'Neill's childhood was shit. After the divorce, she and Griffin initially lived with their badly addicted mom. And Tatum said that uh, one of her mom's boyfriends beat her and molested her when she was six years old. Mm. When she was eight, Ryan O'Neill got custody of the kids. So she and Griffin moved in with him. That was better. I mean, mean, dad. Out of the frying pan mm -hmm. and into the fire. Dad had a bad temper, knew how to fight, liked drugs. Uh, She says that his drug dealer molested her when she was 12. Oh, God. When she was a teenager, dad and Farrah Fawcett got together. And Farrah Fawcett was not interested in being a stepmom to these three kids now. So dad moves in with Farrah and leaves 16-year-old Tatum in charge. Uh, What? At his house. You're kidding. Dad moves out and leaves his three kids and she's the oldest, mm-hmm. so now she's, she's trying mom. to run. She's a sixteen-year-old trying to run a house with two boys. In yeah. the yeah. oh my god, yeah, this girl um, never just, had a break. No, no, no. And Ryan O'Neill, like stellar work there, creating a safe and nurturing environment for your children to thrive from, which only one of them has managed to do. Wow, and that's Patrick. <laughs> okay, so on the acting front. Tatum had some other roles in the 70s, like the Bad News Bears, which um, I remember loving as a child. It's a good movie. She was in Little Darlings, which you said you... Ah, Christy McNichol. Okay. Uh, I don't remember it, but... It's like 1980. I had some adolescent uncles as a ute, so Little Darlings was high on their, their list. Yeah, she uh, she even acted alongside Richard Burton in 1980's Circle of Two. So really? So a little Liz Taylor tie in there. Dude, this episode is full of spiderwebs. Second Liz Taylor tie-in. Tatum briefly dated Michael Jackson. What? Yeah, weirdly, it did not work out. (laughs) So basically, uh, young Tatum O'Neill is a working actor in Hollywood, has an Oscar and a Golden Globe, has two brothers, Griffin and Patrick. And it seems like she and Griffin both had pretty solid drug habits going at fairly young ages. Griffin would recount later how dad Ryan O'Neill gave him cocaine at the age of 11 and demanded he use it. No. Yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah. Not appropriate. They do not speak. Ryan O'Neill just outright says, I hate Griffin. (laughs) It's pathetic. Ryan O'Neill is a pathetic human being. There's no amount of therapy that's going to help this family. No, no, nor, nor do they want it. God damn. Like, 
what a waste of flesh. Okay, let's hop over to uh, Tatum O'Neill's future ex-husband now. Okay. John McEnroe. John was born... Bad boy, bad boy. What you gonna do? Yeah, he was born February 16th, 1959 in Wiesbaden, West Germany. His dad was Air Force uh, by 1960. Dad's stint was up and the family, John is the oldest of three brothers, moved to New York. They end up settling in the community of Douglaston, Queens in 1963. And when he was about eight, John starts playing tennis at the local tennis club and sure. like, or at the local club. Well, right. Whatever. Whatever it was in the 60s where you played tennis. The club. It's flat. <laughs> flat place with nets. <laughs> Their judges will call it a court. Anyway, uh, his parents saw that he was pretty talented, so they enrolled him in like the local tennis association. He starts competing, you know, in, in junior tennis stuff and ends up joining the Port Washington Tennis Academy in Long Island for additional tutelage. Well, that sounds posh. Yeah. In 77, he graduated from high school and began his amateur tennis career. So he, right out of the gate, wins the mixed doubles at the French Open with his childhood friend, Mary Carrillo. So then he goes on to- They were a great doubles pair. Yeah, yeah. Mary Carrillo is a fantastic player. He is too, like (laughs) by all accounts. He is he is a little good at tennis, yes. So he qualifies for Wimbledon and makes it all the way to semifinals where Jimmy Connors beat him in four sets. And that was the first record that John McEnroe set. So his 77 Wimbledon performance, it was the best showing by an amateur at a Grand Slam tournament in the open era. Wow. Which I believe had only begun in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And the open era is when they quit requiring everybody to be... They called them shamateurs because there was this amateur requirement. So all these pros would like, I don't know, dip out of pro for whatever the time period was. Exactly. And there you go. Okay. Things I learned about tennis researching this story. Sportsing. Okay. So Stanford is like, holy shit, this kid's good. So they recruit him. He comes in and leads the Stanford team to the NCAA championship, wins the NCAA singles title. Signs his first endorsement deal in 1978. Uh, Again, he advances to the semis at a Grand Slam tourney, this time the U.S. Open. Wow. Where Jimmy Connors beat him again. Oh. (laughs) In the semifinals. But that year, he won five titles, uh, one by beating Arthur Ashe in straight sets. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. I think I remember that match. Mm, Okay. So he is a big deal at the ripe old age of 19. The next year, he wins his first Grand Slam singles title at the U.S. Open. He is the youngest male winner since 1948. He beat Bjorn Borg. It was fun to see these names again. Like, I haven't sure. thought of Bjorn Borg in years. But, okay, so he beats Bjorn Borg at the WCT Finals. And all told, he took home 10 singles and 17 doubles titles that year. Wow. 27 total. And that, too, is a record in the Open era. He was the number three ranked male player in the world. Big deal. Mm-hmm. He was also already gathering up detractors with his behavior on the court. For all of his tennis prowess, what made John McEnroe a truly memorable figure in sports was his hot-tempered rantings and tantrums during matches. He would yell at referees and umpires. He would draw fines for yelling at the officials. He was nearly thrown out of Wimbledon in 81 for calling an umpire. This is such a New York thing. The pits of the world. Oh my God. How <laughs> is that even? Uh, He had this ultra-high-conflict strategy 
That was how he played, which he says it started just as a reaction like to how uptight the audiences were. He's this brash New York kid who's suddenly in London. And, and tennis is... Andre's going to have the same story. Like, tennis is very refined. You're not one of our kind. Right, Exactly. Right. Uh, so he says now that it, it was kind of a joke. Like, a lot of... Certainly, he's a highly competitive guy, and he, he did get angry on, on the court. But it was also, like... It sort of developed as a bit of a joke. So he would have some on-court tantrum. And after the game, you know, like Phil Knight at Nike would call him up. You go, man. Like, we're going to run with this. It's great. Like, so they built. So encouraging bad behavior. Yeah, they built whole campaigns around it. But he was such a TV draw that tennis wouldn't penalize him as much as it should. Because if he got kicked out of the tournament, there would be. They wouldn't sell as many tickets. Everybody's they, scratching everybody's back. It's really, yeah. Um, he <laughs> he once smacked a soda can with his racket while he was fighting with a judge, which splashed soda all over the king of Sweden. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, his antics were so famous that to this day, John McEnroe constantly hears his classic catchphrase, you can't be serious when he's out and about. It's also the title of his autobiography. That makes a lot of sense. Yes. In that, he describes how the year 1984 went for him, quote, except for the French and one tournament just before the Open in which I had been basically over-tennised, I won every tournament I played in 1984, 13 wow. out of 15, 82 out of 85 matches. Whoa. No one had ever had a year like that in tennis before. No one has since. So one thing I took away from the book, which, as you know, I speed read a lot of last mm -hmm. night, is that John McEnroe is just a miserable bastard who is <laughs> constitutionally incapable of being happy, except in fleeting <laughs> moments. Like One October night in Los Angeles, 1984, he went to a party at a music producer's house, and there's Tatum O'Neill. Their connection was instant. She was not yet 21, but she moved easily through the Hollywood glitz and glamour while he was newly famous and struggling with his own celebrity. So her confidence was very reassuring to him. They talked all night. They kissed. He got her number. It made him restless. Because <laughs> he, he, he had to leave L.A. to go play tennis. Um, so he's like, they're playing phone tag, pre-cell phone, you know, they're playing phone tag. Sure. In the book, he's already talking about how burned out he is at, you know, the ripe old age of 25. And soon after meeting Tatum, he accidentally manages to get himself suspended from tennis for three weeks. Oh so my God. He is on a plane back to LA to be with Tatum and to be fair, to enjoy Hollywood. Suddenly, he's at parties with like Jack Nicholson, who comes up to him and shakes his hand and goes, never change, Johnny Mac. And, you know, Carrie Fisher is just hanging out, and he is as well-known as the people he's rubbing shoulders with. And this was Tatum O'Neill's world. She was raised by actors. She had won an Academy Award before she wore a training bra, and she was fully at ease with exactly. all of it. Like, she was just relaxed. This was her universe. She was also at a moment in her life where she was just starting to break free of her really screwed-up family and wanted to carve out her own identity. Like she was talking about moving to New York, just get me away from my alcoholic mom and my crazy dad and all of that. So John has a house in New York and asks her to move in. And that is that. So his- Young love. Yeah, so off they go to New York. So his conduct on the court was just getting more and more out of control. He was periodically drawing suspensions just to get some time off. Like he, again, he had been- It's one way to do it. Yeah, he'd been pro since he was 18, so seven, eight years on, like, 
he probably legitimately was really burned out on tennis, but... So he refuses to sign a code of conduct that the U.S. Tennis Association implemented because of John McEnroe. Yeah, no! <laughs> so he couldn't play as part of, like, the the national team that would be fielded to, like, the Davis Cup, I think, is the, the big one for them. Mm-hmm. So, like, for two years, he's he just refuses to sign. And he, he's... Again, like, he created the situation, but in his book, it's all like, you know, I was so adrift, and I missed having teammates, and, uh, you know, like... Well, maybe don't act like an asshole. That's really... Yeah. So, you know, at the age of 26, his body's starting to, you know, he's playing... He's playing Mm 16-year-olds, and it's hard. (laughs) It's very hard. They're really good. And he talks about, uh, like, Boris Becker makes... Like, these really big guys with these, like, super powerful... Like, tennis was changing, too. For sure. Because, basically, people like him created a game that they could always win. Him and, like, uh, Lindell and, you know, like, that cohort. So, the next cohort made it a different game, so those old guys couldn't compete with them. (laughs) That's... We're going to talk about that. mm -hmm, Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. He peaked in 84. Like, that that was the best year of of his entire career okay so his career is starting to decline and tatum learns that she is pregnant with her first child so kevin is born may 23rd 1986 less than two years into their like a year and a half are they married no oh they get married later okay Um, tatum's 22 they get married on august 1st of 86 tatum is almost immediately pregnant again wow yeah and like this is a woman who like, I've just broken free from having to take care of my brothers. I'm finally finding some independence. Mm-hmm. And she fully planned to be a working actor. Like, she fully planned to transition from child star to adult actor. Also, her husband is super famous, but travels like 30 weeks a year. Sure. So, I mean, just the whole thing is, it, it's no a lot. No support says Like, that's, that's it's tough. It's a lot, yeah. And of course, she had such a strong foundation in how to have trusting relationships with people anyway. Yeah. And, and there was and there was drug use happening. Um, this kid never caught a break. No. Uh, so she's almost immediately pregnant again, telling John on New Year's Day of 1987. So they got married in August. Seems like this is kind of where the good part of their relationship ends, which sucks. John was just increasingly obsessed. He's going to revive the glory. He's going to like... You know, it's all about putting him back on top. And she's like, okay, well, now I'm a mom. And you have a she, wife and two kids, dude. I mean, yeah, she is a young, beautiful woman, has had a career already. I, it just, the whole thing seemed pretty unbalanced. John McEnroe encounters 16-year-old Andre Agassi just after the wedding. John, yeah. John does beat him in that match, but that will not last, as we know. You can see where the tensions are are building in this marriage. Uh, Years later, Tatum would also say that John indulged in steroids, cocaine, and marijuana, and he admits to the marijuana in his book while he was a tennis pro. Like, not he he wasn't like coked up while he was playing. She said, but she said that she made him stop the drugs because they made him violent, which is great. Like, she really did marry her dad. Pretty good reason to stop. Like, that's my how similar in like her attraction to him. Amago, y'all. Yeah. Amago. Yeah. It- yeah. And to this day, John McEnroe has no kind words for Ryan O'Neill. None. Like, wow. he calls him like a horrific individual or something. I mean, he he's he's a monster. <laughs> okay. So uh, in response to her saying that he'd used steroids and cocaine, 
he released a statement that was notably not a denial. It was just sort of this like, I'm so disappointed that, you know, Tatum is has not come around to my view of things and should really So think not of claiming responsibility mm-hmm. for anything. Good times. Mm-hmm. Good times. Yeah, he's he's yeah, John McEnroe. I, I think he's I think he's grown up a lot since all of this, but Anyway, uh, Sean was born on September 23rd, 1987. Weirdly, having a second child did not fix the relationship. And so, despite all of the tensions in the marriage and the increasingly frequent screaming matches that were marring it, punctuated by makeup sex, of course, in 1990, they decided to have a third baby. Because, why not? (laughs) So, Emily came into the world on May 10th, 1991, and for a brief instant, they thought they had healed their marriage. They had two boys and a girl. They were rich. They were famous. They lived the good life. They brunched at all the hot brunch. I'm kidding. That's just our... We really are fans of brunch. The problems were real. And like at this point, Tatum was getting increasingly embarrassed about John's tantrums on the tennis court. I think it's when you're at the top of your game, you can be an entertainer too. When you're a washed up... Sure. Then you're just a a baby. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she, you know, it's not a huge age difference they have, but it, it's there. And when you're in your twenties, that like five years or whatever, that's a lot of time. A little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think they're just growing up and growing apart is part of what's happening for sure. By 92, they were barely speaking. He was still on the road with tennis. He was washed up. Guys like Agassi, Pete Sampras were on the rise. In October of that year, almost eight years to the day after meeting, they decided to divorce. Mm. Tatum went straight to People Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> like you do. Like you do. Match. Uh, with the narrative that she was escaping after years of playing second fiddle to John. And, you know, he was, he's really, he's mad that she portrayed it that, like, he thinks that he did not impede her from pursuing her career. Like, he just, he says a lot of mean things about her in the book and her work ethic. Well, we've clearly seen him take responsibility for all of his previous decisions, so that yeah. doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. So she immediately lands a lead role in a TV movie soon after this, and it really did look like John's obsession with his own career had been the thing standing between Tatum O'Neill and success as an adult actress for about five minutes. <laughs> Until what happens, what happens? Uh, heroin. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so no. So their divorce... Took a couple years, but then the custody fight went on um, maybe through 98. Oh, wow. 96, 98. So because she was actively using drugs, the kids were saying, you know, dad, I think mom's in trouble. Like little kids, right? Like Emily's a few years old. So this custody fight goes on for years. And in the end, just like her mother, Tatum O'Neill lost custody of her children uh, to John because of her addiction. This family is so... Yeah. theory. Yeah, and I mean, wow. uh, her brother Griffin has had serious drug problems too. Like, it's it, it's a really sad story. There are some positive things coming though. Okay, so, good, because this is this, yeah. the trenches of mm-hmm. bad. Yeah, so John remarries in 97 uh, and is still married to this day to rock singer Patti Smythe. They have two daughters together, but obviously Patty played a pretty formative role in the lives of the three children from John and Tatum's marriage. John's had a good later career in broadcasting. He does like senior tennis, sure. se- seniors tennis events. Like when you see him already, he looks like he's settled down a little bit. I, I think so. I think so. Um, 
I watched a clip from CBS Sunday Morning uh, with him and Patty, and he was saying that according to his wife, he lacks the empathy gene. And she she says that like, they they're very good together. She's like, oh, just according to your wife. And he's like, okay, well, according to my wife, my six kids, and everyone else I know. <gasps> oh, <laughs> isn't that what Jen Aniston said about Brad Pitt too? Maybe, yeah. I think that rings really familiar with another divorce that we've done. Interesting. Lacking the, how did you say? Yeah. The empathy it, gene. Or yeah. Whatever, yeah. His kids, uh, they use words like demanding uh, to describe him, but all of them also seem pretty close to him. Like, it, it seems like it's a very close family in spite of so much. Wow. Um, Tatum was able to get clean. She relapsed in 2008 uh. and was arrested for buying cocaine, but it does, it seems like... She has gotten it back together. She was able to negotiate that charge down to a misdemeanor and uh, seems to have been clean since then. She got back to acting in the 2000s. Her most memorable role, to my mind anyway, was uh, Maggie Gavin in Rescue Me, where she played the alcoholic sister of Dennis Leary's character. She's written two books, A Paper Life and Found, A Daughter's Journey Home, which documents her unsuccessful 2011 attempts to reconcile with her dirtbag father. (laughs) Yeah, they had a show on like the Oprah Winfrey network yeah. that was just harrowing. Yeah. No, I bet. To watch. I Mhm. Woo. Man. There's no amount of camp therapy I think uh-uh. that's ever going to help them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh in 2017, Tatum and daughter Emily made a dozen episodes of a podcast called Tatum Verbatim, although it hasn't had new episodes since the end of that year. Their son, Kevin Tatum, and uh, John's son, Kevin, wrote the novel Our Town, which is a fictionalized account of Tatum's mother, which it was very well received. Uh, Sean, who changed his name to Sean O'Neill in 2015. Really? He's a fine art photographer in Los Angeles, and he says that the name change wasn't any... He's not mad at his dad, but the name McEnroe is just too... Growing up, he was always John McEnroe's kid, you want to break um, apart from that and find your own he, identity. That is exactly what he said it was about. So here is just a little more color from that Vanity Fair article after Farrah Fawcett died. Just a, just a little bit more about the, the deep relationship between Ryan O'Neill and Tatum O'Neill oh. as adults. So as noted, Farrah Fawcett, partner of 30 years, dies of cancer in 2009. That's sad. Mm-hmm. At the funeral. Okay, so Griffin was not allowed to attend the funeral, but Tatum and Patrick did. Tatum goes up to her father to give him a hug. And this is how Ryan O'Neill, Ryan O'Neill said this to a journalist. I had just put the casket in the hearse and I was watching it drive away when a beautiful blonde woman comes up and embraces me. No. I said to her, no, you have a drink on you. You have a car. She said, daddy, it's me, Tatum. I was just trying to be funny with a strange Swedish woman and it's my daughter. It's so sick. Yes. No, yes, it is sick. No. He hit on his daughter at Farrah Fawcett's funeral. And that is the sad and very trashy story of John McEnroe and Tatum O'Neill. That is some significant trash. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so let's post it mm-hmm. on this. Mm-hmm. We're going to be giving Ryan O'Neill a trash can rating. Yes, yes, we will. At the end as well. It's oh my god, it's like d- so high, so high, so high. Okay, well, that story is just full of tragedy. Let's pause for the cause. I need to drink some more coffee. And then we'll you got to come back to hear about. I have a secret confession. 
I was in love with Andre Agassi at 13, and I'm 46, and I still think I am a little. So I don't uh, know how that affects our relationship going forward. I don't know how it affects Andre Agassi's relationship with his current wife yeah, right. either. So. Let's, take, let's take a break and negotiate that out. We've got some hot middle-aged podcasters, Andre. What's up? <laughs> All right. We'll uh, be back. Be back. Hey, Trash Pandas, when you need a brain break from your day, let me recommend the game June's Journey for Android and iPhone. It's a hidden object mystery game where you are solving a murder, uncovering family secrets, and, I don't know, exposing official corruption? All in an extremely stylish 1920s setting. Every scene takes you deeper into the mystery and introduces you to an expansive cast of characters as June Parker explores the questions surrounding her sister's apparent murder-suicide at the family's beachfront estate. Add your own elements to the island, from lush gardens to gorgeous new buildings. This story has so many twists and turns. Right now, we are on a global journey attempting to rescue June's niece, Virginia. It's a great combo of gameplay. It's a memory puzzle, a design project an intriguing storyline with genuinely fabulous art. When you want to let your mind wander, relax into this glorious 1920s murder mystery and get lost in the fun. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Alicia. Let's see if we can bring this mood back around. You gonna make a racket? Ha. (laughs) Funny girl. So today... Mm Mm-hmm. I am bringing you the trashy divorce of Brooke Shields mm. and Andre Agassi. Oh, you know what? I can already see a Tom Cruise tie-in happening. I sorry. I want to be so done with that sanctimonious prick bag, but no, he's <laughs> going to make a he's going to make an appearance in I, this story. One of the uh, articles I read described Ryan O'Neill as the Tom Cruise of his day. I was That's like, oh, probably pretty apropos. So today, in the lens of trashy divorces, I'm going to present this story to you. In a five-set match. There's so much to love about this story. It is full of heartache and tragedy, but full of happy endings, of which I am a fan. Okay. So we're gonna we're gonna end it. We're gonna end it on a happy ending. That sounds good. Okay. Set one. Her before him. Brooke Krista Shields is born May 31st, 1965. Cool. She happy, is a Gemini. Happy day after my birthday. Air sign, right? Her mother, Terry, is a part-time model and cosmetologist. Her father, Frank, is an executive with Revlon. The couple splits when Brooke is like six months old. Mm, Okay. But don't worry. Terry has a lot of plans for her child. Terry says, from the day I brought her home, I knew she'd be a star. No pressure. No pressure. (laughs) At six months old, Terry starts bringing Brooke, baby, little baby Brooke, to modeling and commercial auditions, which she gets a ton of. Her first gig is an ivory soap baby at the tender age of six months. By one, she is a working model. Yikes. One. Wow. So, wow. Terry. A lot of autonomy. Is the original momager. Chris Kardashian, move the hell over because Terry Shields is really going to set this thing up and Brooke spends weekdays with her mom working and weekends with her dad and her dad just wants her to be a normal kid like he's not into this but okay she's a beautiful child when I give compliments they're never about how you look that's how compliments shouldn't like you shouldn't be done that way you should be 
what a kind thing to say. You know, you, you look for something other than that, but Brooke Shields is legitimately beautiful. And she has that thing in front of a camera that... Great. So she's the it baby? She's the it baby. <laughs> but by third grade, Brooke Gosh, knows... she's probably burned out by now. <laughs> well, bigger problems. Terry is an alcoholic. She is a raging alcoholic. So by third grade, Brooke is aware that her mother has a problem. Like she comes home from school and Terry is already smashed in the afternoon. Yikes. In April of 1975, Brooke becomes the youngest person ever to sign with Ford Modeling Agency. First preteen ever to sign with them. Now, Eileen Ford says Terry was great. They never had a crossword. But Terry in her throes of addiction is making some very different choices for her child. The first being letting Brooke complete a shoot for this thing called Portfolio 8. So at 10, Brooke is posing nude. Adult face of makeup in naked in a bath. To, like, Whoa. Yes. Wow. Just her mother doesn't see anything weird about this. I see her as a work of art wow. that all people should be able to enjoy. So you have a 10-year-old in a highly sexualized, sexualized. Wow. We are not covering the news of the day in this podcast. We're sticking to the story. Right, but right. Oh, yeah. No, I've... so much to say on Patreon this week. Sure. Okay. Man, it's just, it is. This is child porn. Yeah. And the it child... is so lucky that Ryan O'Neill never met her mother because you ain't kidding. I mean, and Brooke is, you know, kind of too young to understand, and now she becomes famous for that. Uh, in that January, so not it's fair. So not fair. In January of 1977, she lands a role in Pretty Baby. She is 11. She is playing a child prostitute. Shh. Didn't know about I yeah is it what Blue Lagoon or whatever that's, that's coming that's what I remember hold on in Pretty Baby Brooke is playing a preteen prostitute Susan Sarandon is in that as well mm. who is her mother prostitute great auctioning off her daughter good in uh, uh, wow and Brooke by this point like can't create any autonomy but she wants to she knows her mom is a raging alcoholic and asks. The set people like, please keep my mom off the set. And would you just ask my mom not to be here? Because her mom is creating this drama behind the scenes. And when asked about it, Brooke says, you know, with mom, I have to do it perfect all the time. And I don't want to have to think that much about my acting. I just want to be able to have my scene and not have in the back of my head. My mom thinks I'm fucking it all up. It's just bad. Pretty Baby comes out in April of 1978. It is touted as the most original film of the year. It's a Louis Malle film. Her performance is praised, uh, but it. some people knock it off as a cheap exploitation. Mm. Not appropriate for a child, mm. then or now. And Brooke, at this point, begins to stage interventions for her mother. Wow. She packs her bags. At the age of 11, 12? And, yep. And is at the door. And she's like, listen, I'm going to go live with dad if you do not stop drinking. Right. Like She is... Alcoholism is super tough on kids. 
whether you're a child or whether you're an adult, reckoning with an alcoholic parent is very difficult. Kids in this situation, it's super tough. They have an altered reality because your parents' reactions are in no way regular or predictable, just in normal situations. There's no stability. Terry does, after one of these interventions, enters rehab. Good. Brooke stays with her aunt during this time. She gets some roles, right? Because Terry's not doing as much, playing regular kids, right? Oh, I'm in a pinball movie. I'm into this. I'm into this. Not super exploitation. Not not exploitative Mm -hmm, at all. (laughs) But these movies aren't successful. Okay. They're because... Or right. mom is set. Okay. So in early 1979, at the tender age of 14, she scores the lead in Blue Lagoon. Okay. Which opens June of 1980, rakes in $59 million at the box office. But the movie comes out a year later after she films that. Like the sex scenes are, she's playing, she's never had a period, but she's playing someone who, ha- like, it's a uh, poor kid so she by this point has entered high school that must have sucked yeah she is a dil- her teachers talk about her she's an excellent and diligent student she has different color pens for every day her note taking is meticulous like brooke besides just being a very pretty face is absolutely like super all organized. about super Which, organized super smart a, is that a child of alcoholic parents trait as well is sort of a i want to organize and control mm -hmm. and have things predictable and on monday i use a red pen right and on tuesday i use a purple pen absolutely because that is something i can control unlike everything else in my life there's a book reference i'm going to put in there's a fantastic book we'll talk about it kind of at the end but let's okay she starts high school she gets to be normal right it's a big deal but while you're in high school with your different colored pens At 15, she takes on her role in Endless Love. By this point, she's developed enough autonomy to insist on a body double. And that she doesn't like sexy. Like, she is not comfortable in this, gets a body double for that. August of 1980, she begins her Calvin Klein ads. Do you remember that? Nothing comes between Mm -hmm. me and my Calvins. It's an easy 500K for six different spots. But even because there's nothing vulgar, it's purely innocent in the way that she's but a lot of stations refuse to air just the suggestion of it 1981 she's the it girl she is on the covers of 30 magazines in the year 1981 alone she's getting great grades she is hanging with michael jackson john travolta there's a little tidbit i learned along the way john travolta learns french for her so when you hear Royale with cheese. Oh, yeah. I just want you to think about where he picked up his French accent from. Interesting. I thought I heard you listening to that scene the other day. Oh, to- yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I was like, why it's like is- I, w- I want to hear him say Royale with cheese why? and think about why how. Why is Alicia watching that scene? John Travolta learns French for Brooke Shields. It's incredible. She graduates high school in June of 1983, enters Princeton. Big, big deal. Whoa. Yeah. Life as a college freshman is hard for everyone, mm-hmm. anyone. She's disconnecting from her mom for the, like, it is a shock to the system for every 18-year-old kid. But how much harder 
to do as yeah. that when you're a fucking stupid, like yeah. superstar. She joins the campus theater group. So she's playing, you know, Through chorus girls and, and yeah. you know, she's, she's nobody. She's just one, she's a regular mm-hmm. kid doing regular things and starts to, uh, finds a guy she likes, Princeton football player by the name of Dean Kane. Oh. Superman. I know Dean Kane. Right. He's a sophomore. She's a junior. They begin to date. They have this wonderful relationship. Can, and can I just admit, though, I would not have assumed that Dean Kane would be someone who could get into Princeton under any circumstances. I, more than just a pretty face. It does not I guess. seem super okay. For about two years, she is into books and Dean. And Dean actually gets in the middle a few times with Brooke and her mom, who still have a highly volatile relationship. I'm sure, sure. Dean describes it years later like it was not healthy or productive, supportive, or mutually beneficial. In June of 1987, Brooke graduates from Princeton with honors with a degree in French literature. Hmm. And she says, if I had not gone to school, I would not have had the opportunity to grow up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But she's been at school for a number of years. At 22, she wants to get back into the scene. She's been a little bit forgotten. Mm -hmm. She's going to stay on the East Coast. Dean is like, hey, I want to go to L.A. and be a star. That bi-coastal relationship thing, never going to work. It changes their relationship. They do stay friends. This unrooting is a terrifying period for her. She battles depression. She can't leave the house sometimes. And it reminded me just kind of reading about this of the Unicorn Store movie where you're out of college. You're supposed to have the world at your feet. And you're like, what the fuck do I do now? She does battle this by 1989. She is 23. She gets a place of her own in New York City trying to break through. She is on the hunt for a man. And at this point, she says, I'm looking for a sense of humor. If you can't make me laugh, it's not happening. But for three years, she plays the field and boy, does she. Dates the likes of Woody Harrelson, John F. Kennedy Jr., Liam Neeson, and Michael Bolton. Everyone's favorite 80s crooner. Yeah. Okay. So that's the end of set one. We're going to go into set two. Andre Agassi, him before her. He's born April 29th. He's a Taurus. He's an Earth sign. And Emmanuel, Mike Agassi, his dad, is born in Iran in 1930. And his dad actually competes for Iran as a boxer in the 1948 and 1952 Olympics. So he's so it's an athletic family that he's born into. Not at all. Oh. He has an athletic father. Oh. Okay. <laughs> he, uh, Mike, the dad, immigrates to America and finds a nice gal, Betty, in Chicago. They marry and have four kids. Andre is the youngest of these children. And dad recognizes in Andre, yes, this is the manifestation of my dream. He is a kid who is going to be in a, into tennis. As a kid, Andre is hitting everything he can get his hands on. Like, his older brother's like, shit was dangerous in our house. Like, shit just got knocked around all the time. Dad, by the age of two, has given Andre a shaved-down wooden racket, and Andre is popping balls. And Dad sees what Andre has, and he is going to develop that talent pretty much from birth. Dad is also sort of a technical genius and engineers just a regular ball machine to actually pop out different kinds of shots. Like the training he is doing with a toddler 
with a child is revolutionary. And dad's vision and Andre's determination is going to change the game of tennis. Dad understands the math of it and trains Andre like he was trained like a boxer. So you watch Andre play and he is an offensive player. He is making you run. You never get a chance to rest. It is relentless. He steps up to the net. He is, Andre is hitting 10,000 balls in every practice session. Jeez. Classic parent thing. He, dad is imprinting some stuff onto Andre. But Andre says like, even though his dad was really tough on him, he never doubted that his dad loved him. He starts playing in tournaments and getting the, this kid is a phenom buzz. And dad is really pushing him to do well. And doing anything less than well is not acceptable. Andre actually gets fourth place in a tournament once and dad smashes that trophy. Fourth place is not good enough. Okay. By the time Andre's 13, dad is out of his steps. Dad has taken him as far as he can go. And Andre gets shipped off to Florida to Nick Boletari's Tennis Academy with every other top kid from every other state. Now he is in a completely different league. It is a full-time tennis camp. And here's the testosterone of a shit ton of adolescent kids who play tennis all day long. But Andre is being challenged and playing with the likes of like Jim Courier, like all the people who are going to be his friends and opponents for Mm -hmm. the next, but they're all making each other better. Right. But for Andre, like, it's hard. He's a kid. He misses Las Vegas, where his family moved, like, from Chicago. He's been raised in Las Vegas his whole life. He likes girls and music and movies, and he starts testing his limits, and he's kind of being a jerk. He's resisting. He knows his talent, but he is... He hates it. Like, why, why, why? And he's doing teenage stuff. He's breaking all the rules, testing all the limits. But at the age of, the tender age of 16, Andre goes pro. Mm -hmm. He gets his first contract from Nike, a two-year $45,000 deal. And he's living large. And now he really, he's gone pro. Now he has to represent. He loses his first pro match. He gets creamed and he wants to quit. Like, I am not cut out for this. I'm going to go be an accountant. Let me go sell real estate. Like, let me do anything else but this. And he is pissing off older players. He is pissing off the tennis culture and the establishment. He's brash and he's confident. Well, he he had the weird hair. Like, yeah. The weird hair and the outfits. Here's something funny about his weird outfit. He got really known and famous for those denim shorts. Like, you don't wear denim on a tennis court. What the fuck? Those denim shorts were originally designed for John McEnroe. Really? And John McEnroe passed on them. And Andre's like, acid wash denim? Cool, I'm in. Yeah. So he is talented. He's blowing it on the Pro Tour, but wants kind of to make him work harder. Like, can he live up to this hype? In 1987, he makes his Wimbledon debut. This kid has grown up in Las Vegas. There are no grass courts in Vegas. Yeah. You're on clay. Yeah. Doesn't happen. So Andre gets to Wimbledon and bombs. Like he is smeared. He will not return until to Wimbledon until 1991. That's how badly this shakes him. So in the meantime, 1988, still not going to Wimbledon. Andre Agassi is ranked number three in the world. 
He wins six titles that year. He's making ad deals. He is the spokesman you want. He is young and fresh. By 1990, though, he's kind of off his game. He's not winning titles. His focus has changed a bit. Here's the thing. I I love him so much. From the time Andre's like 13, 14, he has been relentlessly working for charities in Las Vegas for that support disadvantaged kids. He goes out every December and buys out Toys R Us, brings those presents to kids in the hospital on oh, Christmas. Cool. Like he is a celebrity that does all this work without any real kind of recognition or being told to you by your agent. Like, yeah, he's the real deal. But post it note that because that does get better. 1991. He does return to the worn grass courts at Wimbledon, Mm -hmm. makes it to the quarterfinals. 1992, returns back to Wimbledon. He has this little confidence boost up. In this year, he takes out Boris Becker, John McEnroe, and finally Ivanisevic in the finals. And he has attained his first Grand Slam championship. Good All job. those games that he played as a kid where he imagined, because like you do that when you're an eight-year-old player, the shots, the winning shot at Wimbledon, oh, yeah. he oh, does yeah. it. He's fucking done it. Yeah. Also in 1992, he is having one of his first significant relationships. Any guesses on who that's with? Is it with Brooke Shields? No, it oh. is with Barbara Streisand. Whoa. They date for like oh, a year. I think I I think I recall that actually. Cougar Town. Cougar Town. Agassiz <laughs> writes in his autobiography. We agree that we're good for each other. So what if she's twenty eight years older? We're simpatico, and the public outcry only adds spice to our connection. That's uh, probably true. It makes our friendship feel forbidden, taboo. Another piece of my overall rebellion. This is the best. Dating Barbara Streisand is like wearing hot lava. Whoa. I can't even. Whoa. <laughs> 1993 is a little tougher. Breakup from Barbara. He has a wrist injury. And something that stings even more. Uh, Andre breaks up with his coach, mm. Nick Balateri. So they have been together for 10 years. And Nick Balateri really regrets this. Because Andre didn't break up with... Nick knows the writings on the wall. And instead of Nick sitting around to let Andre dump him, Nick writes this dear Andre letter and dumps him before Andre can dump him. And by all accounts, this kind of crushes Andre. Nick was just as much of a father figure as his dad. They have been together for 10 years every fucking day. But no worries. Andre recruits another really good player, Brad Gilbert, to be his coach. Right. And McEnroe hates Brad Gilbert. Well, Brad Gilbert is a fucking brainy tennis player. Right. He wrote a book called Winning Ugly. Yeah. Like that's, but Brad gets the game in a way that really enhances Andre's offense because Brad understands the the math of the game, right? So he lands Andre with a whole new way, right? A super technical mm-hmm. approach to the game, yeah. So this kid who starts out as a phenom doesn't really do it is now kind of making his way into achieving on the promised success. He's a rock star. I've watched so many old matches of his. Like, he'll hit balls in between his legs and over his shoulders. Like, he is relentless in pursuit of that ball. Now, here is the weird dichotomy of Andre Agassi that I love so much. Because you see him on the tennis court and you think, God, this kid's a rebel and he's relentless and blah, blah. 
He is the biggest surfer boy ever. If there was an ocean in Las Vegas, he'd be a surfer boy. He reminds me a lot of Jack Johnson because when you hear him, his affect is very soft. He's kind of goofy and kind of gentle. So there's such a dichotomy about what you see on the court and what he really is. But okay, now we're going to bring these two kids together in set three. We have our Gemini woman, Taurus man. And there's a special bond that needs to be formed when we talk about the earthy Taurus and the airy Gemini to get along well. doesn't happen a lot. When they do get along, they become as steady as a hard rock. But if they don't, it's not going to work. We're going to, oh, there's so much fun stuff in here. Okay. So a Taurus man is ruled by the planet of Venus So dealing with love and compassion and charm and sensuality, Gemini ruled by the planet of Mercury. So all about effective communication and exchange of ideas. In astrology terms, this air-earth match is a sandstorm. Ah. Okay, so remember Brooks in New York. Shield your eyes. Fall of 1993. And a mutual friend is like, hey, Brooke, I I know you're on the hunt. Michael Bolton didn't work out for you. JFK Jr. hit the skids. You should really meet my friend Andre. At the time, he's in South Africa. They start corresponding. Both child stars, Mm -hmm. relentlessly pushed by a parent. Right. Right? Neither one of them are anywhere close to their potential. Andre is this suburban kid who is just, Brooke fucking Shields, you got to be kidding me. So they, again, in the day before cell phones, they spend three months faxing oh my God. and phone calls oh my God. until they finally have their first date, which they do, and it is a love match. They're head over heels. She is starring on Broadway. She replaces Rosie O'Donnell as Rizzo in Greece. That same month, Andre wins the U.S. Open. In 1994, by October, Terry is fired as momager. Brooke is interesting. Yeah, signed on with William Morris. Right. She gets great reviews in her Grease performance. Andre comes and watches almost every performance. He's still playing through the spring of 1995. She's reconnecting with her mom. They date for like four years. He's one in the open. He wins the Australian Open in 95. He proceeds to go on a 26 match winning streak which is incredible in men's tennis. I don't want to diss on John McEnroe, but I'd like to compare those two because I think Andre really did it. He does go down against Sampras, and this hits, that's when his streak ends, it hits Andre pretty hard. 1996, she's working, he's working, and they're in love. She has a guest spot, remember on Friends, where she plays Joey Tribbiani's deranged fan who thinks that Dr. Drake or Moray is... A little is, bit, a okay. little bit, yeah. She does a great job. In this performance, licks Joey's hand. Andre's on set and storms off. Oh, really? hmm She runs outside to find him, and she writes this. He said, I made him look like a fool by licking Joey's fingers, and he got in the car and drove all the way to Las Vegas. Once he got to Las Vegas, he smashes all of his tennis trophies, destroying them in a rage. Whoa. Yeah. Oh, they're, they're, that's a chicken leg, though. That's, that's, a, that's a pretty that... good red flag. Uh, <laughs> but this role gets her some new offers. Mm-hmm. So she's reading pilot scripts. They head off to Hawaii, 
And Andre really has set up the most romantic proposal in the world. Hmm. He's like, Brooke, isn't that the most beautiful sunset you've ever seen? Like, ready to pop the question. And Brooke's like, nah, I've seen better. Oh, God. Like, poor Andre. (laughs) Like, crushed it. He sets this whole thing up and, will you marry me? And she says, you know, hopefully they're your best friend. He's that person to me. They, she says, yes, wedding is on. They marry April 19th in 1997 in California, and they're just beautiful. She's 31. He's 26. It's a first marriage for both. Fairy tale wedding, except for one thing that happens. In the reception, Andre's dad leaves. Angry. Andre is ruining everything I had planned for him. By by marrying. Marrying Mm -hmm. one of the most famous and beautiful people in the world that's he's 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 ruining his life you jerk right so things go on she's accepted her role in suddenly susan with judd nelson and kathy griffin and she's working he's on the tennis circuit so they're not getting a whole lot of time together yeah schedules don't really allow that the relationship is kind of unraveling Andre is battling injuries by 97. His ranking has dropped to 141. Yikes. Yeah. She's trying to make her show work. He's trying to regain his tennis career. But none of this is going to work out. Because one day, Andre Agassi makes a call to Brooke and it's like, hey, I have something to talk to you about. This is 99. And this is, she's writing in her new memoir, There Was a Little Girl. He explained to me that for the first whole part of our relationship, he'd been addicted to crystal meth. What? Yeah. What? I was the one who supported him unconditionally when he told me that he was basically bald and had been wearing hair pieces most of his adult life. What? Why should this have been any different? Like, Brooke has an alcoholic mom. Right. Shields understands addiction. Can't understand why Andre didn't tell her this. Can I just, when did tennis... Have they ever started drug testing? Because clearly, this is a sport in need of drug testing. Right. She suggests they get couples counseling, and he's like, nope, there's no point. And they file for divorce soon after. I was so unbelievably clueless, Brooke says. To this day, I think to myself, my God, Brooke, all you've seen in your life and you couldn't pick this up. But if you watch these athletes play, they play five, six, seven hours at the highest level. And they keep going and going, and the regimen surrounding them is so intense that my justification was, I guess you need to blow off steam when you can. He reveals this meth addiction in... So it was an addiction. His book called Open. Uh, He talks about his descent into drug use and his take on their two-year marriage. Weeks after this confession, Andre does file for divorce. After 23 months, the marriage is over. Very strange. In November 2009, Andre talks about his failed marriage. He says, I think at that time in my life, I couldn't be married to anyone. I think timing is really important. You need in a marriage two people who understand themselves, and I certainly didn't understand myself. Brooke, for her part, credits Andre's support with helping her break free from her mother. She says the whole relationship with him was so necessary. He gave me my first taste of freedom from my mom. He swept me away. You'd 
say something and it would happen. There would be a plane. Or if I said, I can't believe I have termites within 24 hours, the house would be tented. This is a Taurus man. Like, that's <laughs> it just is. She says he's a devoted person, sweet and good, but he had this demon, this affliction. But the other side and what makes this so hard is the way he welcomed me and my mother and anybody I loved. He really is a good human being. Andre was one of the best parts of my life, but they're done. Marriage over. Marriage 23 over. 23 months. Okay. And, so, and and a secret drug addiction revealed. Like Secret drug addiction. I didn't know about that, and I'm stunned. Set four. Her after him. Mm-hmm. This is just, this is the way that a romance movie happens. She is in New York doing her Suddenly Susan TV show. And one day in August of 1999, so it's pretty soon after the divorce, her dog wanders off. And where's my dog? Where's my dog? The dog gets brought back by a writer producer named Chris Henshi, And they fall in love. This is her husband to this day. Like, Here's your dog. So he has this new girlfriend. Uh, Chris Henshi is a co-writer with Kevin Nealon. And Brooke later says, Chris is my guy. He's the one I'm supposed to be with. They are planning on getting married in New York at 35. She is anxious to start a family. Right. She begins fertility treatments. Right. But before they can get married in New York, Brooke's father is diagnosed with prostate cancer. So they marry instead. They travel to Florida so they can get married with her dad. They do marry May 26, 2001. The wedding was spectacular. Close friends and family. She is in cabaret, puts off kids for a minute. The in vitro, after this role is done, the in vitro does work on the first try, but sadly she miscarries after one month. January 2002. She begins next rounds of in vitro. She's determined. This one, the next round doesn't take after the first. It takes after the seventh try was the charm. And she's due at the end of May. She's on the cover of Vogue pregnant. In April, her father dies Mm. at 63. Frank loses his two-year battle Mm. with cancer. She was not there. She can't fly when you're, right? She was not there. And she is mourning grief of losing a parent is tough. She's mourning her dad. And trying to be excited about the baby and preparate, like the one thing she's always wanted to do. Yeah. May 14th, she goes into labor. She has an exhausting labor that lasts for over 24 hours. And eventually they complete a C-section. Her daughter is born May 15th, 2003. So they've got a big birthday month. Huge birthday month. Brooke in this really has a close call in delivery where you hear like, The mother takes a turn because the labor is so Mm -hmm. baby comes home after five days and Brooke doesn't really feel a connection to her child. Her world is falling apart and she is really going through some pretty significant life events, but is faulting herself. Like, why don't I have this attachment? I'm afraid of my kid. Uh, This is classic postpartum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brooke, you know, her mom, there's a history of alcohol abuse. She has a parent passing away. And every day she's like, I cannot get through this day. I have made a horrible mistake. How this is mom's dirty secret. Mm -hmm. One in 10 women are afflicted with postpartum depression. And you're a new mom. This is, oh, oh, yeah, you you don't talk about this. Mm -hmm. Brooke wants to die. 
She did not want to live in her own life. She spends a number of weeks in agony and finally seeks help with therapy and medication. By her daughter's first birthday, she is on the journey to recovery. Mm -hmm. She kind of wants to make peace now that she's getting better, feeling better with her own mom because it's all imago. She is inspired uh, in the summer of 2004 to write a memoir, which is released in spring of 2005 called Down Came the Rain. She tells the story of her postpartum depression, and she's hoping her story is going to help others. Right. And welcome, sanctimonious prick, Tom Cruise. Scientology. May 26th on the Today Show, Tom Cruise. Mm. Oh, I really care about Brooke. She's wonderful and talented, but psychiatry is a pseudoscience. You just need to take vitamins and exercise. Drugs aren't the answer. Like, what a disservice to women's health care. His comments unleash a firestorm. As they should. Which, on the flip side of this, because he is a sanctimonious ass sanctimonious prick. It brings much-needed attention to a pretty serious affliction that happens to 10% of new moms. In late 2005, Brooke does get pregnant again, delivers, this is the weirdest connection ever, delivers her next child April 18th, 2006, the same day and in the same hospital as Surrey Cruz, daughter of Tom Cruise and Katie Holmes. What? No lie, can't make that shit up. Same birthday, Whoa. same hospital. Yeah. Fuck off, Tom Cruise. Anyway, I think of Brooke Shields as all things gracious and good. She is celebrating a very happy 18 years with her husband, Chris Henchy, two beautiful children, working. Like, she hasn't hit her stride. She is all of the good. Can I interject? Because I do know how the um, Tom Cruise, Brooke Shields mental health blah thing sort of resolved itself. Oh, yeah. Talk to me. So Tom Cruise, I guess they are friends and have been for a long time. He he called her after this because I think he realized he had stepped in it and was like, hey, I would really like to apologize. Can we get together? And like invited her to his house to apologize. She was like, hmm. So she calls her publicist and explains what's going on. And the publicist is like, do not go to his house. No. He will film you. Yeah. Make him come to your, he's welcome to apologize, but make him come to your house and tell him to come alone. And he did. He drove over to her house alone and apologized. Okay. Yeah. I mean, good. But it looked, like, it looked like a setup. I mean, it really did. Like, For it sure. looked like he was going to try to have some kind of weird intervention with her about. <laughs> so I guess if Tom Cruise has done anything good, it is shedding mm. some light to postpartum depression. She has her happy ending. Yeah. She's found her guy. Mm-hmm. It's great. Said five, Andre Afterbrook. They get divorced. Sure enough, Andre's ranking begins to climb again. At 29, this is why I'm like, John McEnroe, fuck off. Because at 29, Andre is ready and about to make the most incredible comeback that has ever happened in tennis. Yes. A few weeks after the divorce is complete, he is in the French Open and fucking wins it. The French Open is the only Grand Slam title that he had never won, and now he has. He, through his career, wins a total of eight Grand Slams. He's now prepping for the U.S. Open. There's this real sweet girl named Steffi Graf who won the French Open that year, too. And their coaches are like, yeah, you guys should get together and hit some balls. And whispers 
have started by the time the U.S. Open happens. And you can see Steffi all the way up, like super high in the stands, not in the family box, not anywhere close. But if you're watching, she's coming to his she's coming to his his matches. matches. And they're really trying to remain incognito. And it's super cute. Like Steffi says about him and Brooke said it too. It's that goofy, gentle thing. You get an impression of what you think he's going to be like, and then he is totally going to surprise you. He's not that guy on the court at all. Like He's so soft-spoken and gentle. And In 1999, he wins his second U.S. Open. In 2000, he wins the Australian Open. This is next-level shit. McEnroe never won the Australian Open. At age 33, Andre is number one in the world. Number one in the world. at 33, yep. Uh, Not supposed to happen. Steffi, let's talk about just a little bit about her background. Her and Andre, Steffi is also a child star, a child tennis phenom, a controlling parent. Like their backgrounds are ridiculously similar, Andre and Steffi together. But like Brooke too, Steffi quits the game at 29. I'm sorry, I should say Stephanie. She doesn't really like the name Steffi. She prefers to be called by Stephanie. Yes. I actually don't think I knew that her name was Stephanie. I mean, I'm sure if I thought about it. I'm going to correct that from now on. Okay. Andre and Stephanie marry October 22nd, 2001. They marry with only their mother's present. It's a very small ceremony. They have two children, Jaden and Jazz. Stephanie says his manner is so different off the court. Uh, She's just radiant. She says, I never expected to marry or have kids. They both now reside in Las Vegas. She glows. She, they're still happily married today. They have the same long 18-year run, two kids. Andre and Brooke have done the exact same thing in parallel fashion, mm-hmm. just with the ones they're supposed to be with. He plays professionally for 20 years. He spends 101 weeks at the number one spot, eight grand slams. Not as big of a deal as what else he does. At the age of 23, he launches the Andre Agassi Foundation for Education. In 2001, he founds the Andre Agassi College Preparatory Academy. And he says, I'm an eighth grade dropout. And his goal from very early on was to use education as a vehicle to create choice for those kids that reminded me of myself. In his career, he has earned $31 million in prize money. He has gone on to raise, this is astounding, a further $185 million for the Andre Agassi Foundation for Education, hoping to tackle the brokenness of the U.S. education system. He reaches 65,000 lives on an annual basis. Ah, he's a hero. He calls that his greatest achievement. Growing my education mission across the country, the foundation has 81 schools now. It has been a daunting task, but I'm really proud of it because it's giving children choices through education, changing lives, is by far and away more fulfilling than impacting someone's life for a few hours or building some kind of on-court legacy. What does a legacy even mean? None of us are going to be around to appreciate our legacy, so it's about what you choose to do with your time. When you change a child's life, you change the future. I'm, I love him. Two other takeaways here, just so I can share my love of Andre Agassi. He says the best piece of advice that, He has, I've learned over the years, it's always better to listen more than talk and to understand more than teach. 
you realize that's the quality behind the people who've helped you most in life. This is another amazing takeaway and bring it back around. He's asked what the secret to a happy relationship is. He says, I don't think there's a secret, but I think there's some necessary working parts. I think you need two whole people individually, first of all, who don't need each other, but respect and love each other in a way that has full discipline and commitment. Talks about Stephanie. We are two individuals that have lived full lives and we don't react to each other. We respond to each other. If you have these working components, that will give you the chance to nurture a beautiful opportunity. I love the happy ending of the story. Steffi Graf is a Gemini as well. Oh, really? Yeah. Like that's Gemini woman, Taurus man. It reminds me. So Adam Duritz, my. Your secret boyfriend. My other secret boyfriend, prophet and poet, Adam Duritz of the Counting Crows, opens and it's in one of his live shows that we've gone to see that I actually have the CD of. But before he opens the song Sullivan Street, he is talking about what this song was about. And it's this girl named Susan and she's almost the one. It's almost, but it's just not quite. And I look at Andre and Brooke and kind of think that initial together, God, it was almost the one, but it just wasn't quite it. And the two of them have just turned their lives into happy endings. And I love every part of the story. (laughs) I love every part of it. So that... There's your trashy divorce. requires me to ask, how many trash cans do you... I mean, the lying and the math and the... Sure. I would say Brooke's mother is... Well, let's give her a separate trash can rating, just like we're going to with Ryan O'Neal. Brooke has reconciled. Her mom did pass away. Brooke writes a book about her mom. Like, she really has gone through a number of things. But as the original momager goes, Terry Shields, for a while, putting your child into... Yeah, you're... Hmm. Five dirty, dirty trash cans. Mm, yeah, yeah. Brooke and Andre, I'm going to go ahead and go like three. There were some significant problems, but it's that relationship for each of them that gives them the tools they need to build the next one. So I'm going to, I'll go middle of the road on that because you have that relationship that gets you to the one you're supposed to be in. How about you, Ryan O'Neill? Um, my God. The limit does not exist. I mean, the limit does not exist. Like all the trash cans on fire, flaming. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. We could do 16 for the age that his daughter was when he abandoned his children in his home. You know, we could do 30 for the number of years he spent with Farrah Fawcett. Those trash cans are going to catch on fire because they're all made out of paper moons. (laughs) Sorry. That's funny. Um, What about the divorce of Tatum and John? I mean trashy like i think that's a that's a solid five like as far as i know there was no infidelity but god they were like his book is really quite the read um and he does not i think he thinks he's coming off pretty well but he's not <laughs> very just just i i would imagine it is two very self-obsessed people attempting to have a relationship with one another and that level of self-absorption i would let's, let's go five okay I'm down with that. Five. Just, and then the the addiction and the custody fight and the like all of it. So let's circle that back around for a second. Because we've talked about some pretty heavy stuff mm-hmm. in this episode. And as a recommendation for 
any of you out there who are adult children of alcoholics, there's a great book that I can recommend by Dr. Janet G. Wotitz, W-O-I-T-I-T-Z, called Adult Children of Alcoholics. It is a fantastic resource. I highly recommend it. If any of this felt familiar and you see some of your own situation in these stories, if you need a resource, that is an excellent book. You can get it in paperback, find it on Amazon. We'll throw the link to it, but definitely an A-plus read if you were looking to manage some of that inside yourself, because adult children of alcoholics respond in entirely different ways. We've seen it play out yeah, throughout yeah. this whole story. Yeah. Wow, that was all over the place. Woo. We sports. We sports. <laughs> we sports. I hope you all are enjoying watching your Wimbledon finals today. As always, thank you everyone for listening. And we can't wait to be back with you next week. Yup. Until then, keep it trashy. Really, stay really trashy. <laughs> it was really it was a pretty trashy up. Yeah. I'm gonna say today, stay in love. Oh my god. Yeah, stay in love. Happy tennis day, y'all. See you next week. And thanks to you for listening. Trashy Divorces is a Hemlock Creatives production, created and produced right here in Atlanta, Georgia, by us, Stacy and Alicia with a little research and writing help from the brilliant Melissa O. Our art is by Sydney V. Smith. That's Sydney V. Smith at carbonmade.com. And our music is used with permission of Ratsy. Check her out at Ratsy's store on Instagram. And definitely drop into Ratsy's store anytime you're in Oberlin, Ohio. You can contact us at trashydivorces at gmail.com or find us on the World Wide Web at trashydivorces.com. If you need more trash candy in your life, our Patreon community includes some of the very best humans around and thousands of hours of bonus content at every level of support. Join the fun at patreon.com slash trashydivorces. Interested in some Trashy Divorces swag? Check out our merch shop and Trash Panda Enthusiasm Society at bit.ly slash trashy gear. Want to advertise with us? Reach out to sales at advertisecast.com for more information. And last but not least, come play with us on social media. I keep most of our Trashy Divorces Instagram hopping. Stacy and I share it up over on Facebook, including our Trashy Divorces podcast discussion group. Come join us over there and thanks again everybody for listening. Keep it trashy y'all.